So I spent a summer travelling around England. I went to the Craft Council, so this was 23 years ago, when they still held all their records of any craftsman in the country who wanted to register on cards and all very orderly. And I sat and went through by skill. And then I plotted um, on a map of England my journey over the summer around England. And I, I drove and would see different, probably three or four people in a day. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration, the people behind the houses, hotels, shops and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and people mentioned. And if you're doing up your own home, hopefully you'll pick up some tips for yourself. Today I am sitting with Lulu Little, who is director and co-founder of Sewn Britain, which designs and makes furniture and fabrics using a tight network of British craftsmen. Lulu, thank you so much for having us in your beautiful flat. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you. Thank you for coming. Now, you are known as such a champion of British craft, and yet you walk in here and there's so much colour and texture and pattern. And your inspiration is obviously from faraway places. And you also, I think you initially studied Egyptology, didn't you? Yes, I did at uh, UCL. So I came to London after school and have never left. So you have this very British heart and yet your inspiration is global. So tell us how it all began. I suspect it was some sort of yearning as a child when we holidayed only in the British Isles, so Wales and Scotland, which I adored. But I think I was always dreaming of, well particularly camels, which were a very early love. And <laughs> camels... How did you read it in a book or something? I think it was because I thought, particularly two humped camels, Bactrian camels, that they were very beautiful. And they were just very evocative of lovely, um, exotic places. So I collected anything camel-related from a very young age. And then that led on to discovering the Silk Route and Egypt. So particularly anywhere in the Middle East, but really I was sort of curious about anything that felt to me exotic. And so did you devour it through books until you got a chance to travel? Where was your first trip? My first trip to Egypt was when I was 17 and I had decided I wanted to apply to study it at university. And so I went and travelled all over, so Cairo, Luxor, Aswan, um, and completely fell in love with it. I was smitten actually from the moment I landed at, at Cairo in the bustle of the airport. Were you on your own? No, I wasn't. I went with my family. I was going to um, say. Was in, yes, no, that possibly would have been braver than I was. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was everything I'd ever hoped it would be and more. And so then you, you went on to study Egyptology. Mm-hmm. And did you have any idea of how it would lead you into design? No, none whatsoever. It's not a well-known, useful <laughs> degree. <laughs> um, so I think for a long time I thought I'd probably stay on and study more. But there was no obvious path for me to, to follow. But I then went and worked for Christopher Howe, who just had his little shop then in Bourne Street, which is such a fascinating shop. And then he had all the antiques from there. It was before he was doing textiles. And he was incredibly generous with his knowledge and time. Um, so I learned an, a huge amount. 
Um, so I suppose antiques possibly was a, a natural development and, from there. And when you set up Soon, was it set up specifically for championing and using British crafts and British craftsmen? Was that the whole point behind it? Yes, so I spent a summer travelling around England. I went to the Craft Council, so this was 23 years ago, when they still held all their records of any craftsman in the country who wanted to register on cards and all very orderly. And I sat and went through by skill. So blacksmiths, um, metal casters, saddlers, wood carvers, and so the list went on. And then I plotted um, on a map of England my journey over the summer round England and I, I drove and would see different probably three or four people in a day um, in little pockets so I'd start, I started actually down in um, South Devon and then worked my way up right through to the Midlands and up to Sherwood Forest and uh, Sheffield. So did you have a plan by then to, for, to start the company or did you sort of were you kind of waiting to see where it would go and or did you have ideas of what you wanted to produce then? I knew that I wanted to make uh, furniture and lighting um, and somebody I'd become very close to while I had been with Christopher Howe was Peter Twining who's the great dealer and has the, the most extraordinary eye and an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of furniture and of interiors and he had been very kind talking to me about pieces that I would make and so there were a mix of old pieces. I was uh, in partnership with Christopher Hodsell, the uh, antique dealer, and so we started with a very small collection of pieces that he had had um, while he had been working with Geoffrey Benison. So for example the Nureyev trolley was one of those in our first collection, the Halmerman table, and then a few of my own designs and some pieces that I had bought to copy as well. So the collection was very small, the first one, and drew upon lots of different skills. Even just looking around your, your house in the kitchen, you have this extraordinary lampshade that's almost made of petals, or the shell of, a, of an anteater or something. <laughs> or it's like an armour. I mean, yes. where, where did those ideas come from? Well, that was another one that was um, a faithful copy of an original albeit much smaller, and I took that to a silversmith in Sheffield that we've done a lot with over the years. And they make our Nureyev trolley um, and scallop hanging lights, old, well-established silversmith family. And he then, um, through conversations, decided how best to make it, which was around a, a metal sort of skeleton, and then in each individual uh, feather of the owl, we call it the owl lantern, is... Um, cut and um, beaten individually and then welded around the skeleton. Because it's also, it's the, it's the integrity of the manufacturing process which is so, seems to be so key to the, the things that you produce. That's where you're, you're really, what you're really passionate about is that integrity. Yes, it is. I think it's very important for everyone to understand exactly where things come from, just in the same way as it is in the... the food industry, if you are buying an organic chicken, you want to really know it's an organic chicken. And I think it's really no different that people want to understand, especially if they're making a large investment, um, how and where something has been made, and to be absolutely sure of the accuracy of what they're being told, which is something that I think is um, of, of real concern. 
Uh, so the traceability is, is very important. And of those people that you discovered 23 years ago, how many of them are you still working with? The, the vast majority, <laughs> but of course, and you know, many of them have become dear friends over the years. It's a, it is genuinely a very collaborative relationship, and also because actually I was incredibly naive and knew very little, and so they've taught me a huge amount. They're the experts, not me. Uh, so they are the ones that when I might take a design to them, be it a drawing or an original model, they will suggest how something might best be made. So. They have been absolutely um, key to the development of of Zoom. And one of these workshops was the Rattan workshop that you found in Leicestershire. Yeah. Which actually, that you you had a desperate phone call and they (laughs) they were going into administration. Tell us that story because you ended up buying them, didn't you? Yes. Well, it was. um, It all started. I didn't find them on my initial journey around England. I bought a wonderful. monumentally scaled sofa very atmospheric piece uh, years ago and wanted to copy it started to look for rattan weavers in England and was very surprised that I couldn't find any we rather take these things for granted and searched quite hard and then eventually um, a girl with whom I worked for Victoria Wren uh, found this workshop Angraves in Leicestershire and said I found someone and we then discovered that they were the last remaining rattan workshop in England which is quite shocking, really. Really shocking. Um, and so we spoke to them and they, we sent the sofa and they copied it and made it absolutely beautifully. And I had always loved Rattan. I'd collected it again, along with textiles from my teens. Um, and then gave them other models to copy and also started designing some pieces for them to make. And they were making a lot for us. They had quite a large workforce, but only a couple of uh, weavers still working in the traditional way. They were assembling furniture rather than actually still traditionally weaving. And then out of the blue they told us that they um, had put the company into administration. This was Christmas 2010. And so we um, bought the equipment from the administrators and re-employed the, the weavers that were able to to make the furniture as, as we wanted it done. And you know, and there's now, am I right in thinking there's a new apprentice who's coming through the ranks? How long does it take to become a master weaver? (laughs) Traditionally, the apprenticeship took seven years, but that was a very old school approach of making every piece many, many times. We, there is no formal apprenticeship in England for rattan weaving, so we've set up our own. Uh, We now have seven, um, and we're recruiting for three more. Um, So the, the first one, Marcus Clifton, uh, has been with us six years and uh, Mick Gregory and Phil Ayres who were the two weavers that we re-employed have been extraordinary in training um, and it was always a fine balance of using the time to make as well as to train. And they are extraordinary pieces. You're, you have a console which has a ripple in it like I mean it looks like the skirt of a dress. Yes. It's, I mean, having done a bit of basket weaving at school, I can tell you, I mean, it is the, one of the most difficult things. My <laughs> basket sort of went out like a vase. It sounds a bit like my scarf. <laughs> <laughs> Knitting yeah. was definitely not my forte. <laughs> but it is, um, some of the pieces that they do are absolutely phenomenal and mm. bespoke headboards and all sorts of things. Yeah, we've done some, well, not we, they have done some extraordinary things. Yeah. 
and they are very, very talented. And it's two very distinct skills, the frame making, which is um, like a skeleton, which creates the, the shape, uh, and then the weaving, which is sort of um, taking the strands of cane through the cage-like form. And you've introduced a lot of colour into the rattan as well. Was that something that was new for them? Does that happen on site, or do you do that? Does the colour happen afterwards? It happens after, uh, and we have just a mile down the road a separate workshop where we do all the finishing and the colouring because it has to be prepared before it's coloured. So you burn off the little strands of loose rattan and just tidy it all up so that it takes the colour very beautifully. And uh, what was your what was the idea be- behind colouring the pieces? It changes the atmosphere enormously. My personal preference is for natural rattan. I particularly like it, but we we colour as a paint and stain. Um, And different markets seem to like different finishes. Uh, But it it does completely change the atmosphere of a piece once it's painted. Yeah, and they're quite bold. I mean, you've got an incredible deep sort of turquoise blue and and, um, kind of deep aubergine red. Uh, Yes, and some lovely um, bright um, paprika and and we're just introducing a black, which looks fantastic. Is that a glossy or a matte? It's quite glossy. How exciting. So it seems to me you you do have your obsessions. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) And you would move it on to whip it swiftly. (laughs) Um, Yes, dogs, animals, whippets in particular. (laughs) Lulu's little whippet panther is lounging by the fire with his little teddy under his nose. He is the most spoiled dog. Having um, had his beef for breakfast. (laughs) So is was it just all animals or as a child it was all you? animals yes i mean really um ponies in the kitchen dogs guinea pigs i had racing pigeons did you yeah which i loved um and every birthday and christmas i asked for a parrot or a monkey neither of which ever happened but i was fairly animal obsessed i sent regular letters to margaret thatcher with my solutions to animal cruelty in particular seal culling was my my um, pet concern <laughs> she always replied did she <laughs> yes which is marvelous well a secretary um, very very politely i think it, they were filed in the mad letter box but <laughs> and actually in the corner of the room you have the most enormous stuffed porcupine um who called keith was it keith keith, keith. yes <laughs> very keith. much part of the family <laughs> I mean, it is quite, you, it's a bit like a sort of Noah's Ark, really. Uh, yes, um, animals in every form, paintings, sculptures, textiles. Yeah, I, I can't quite resist. Where do you go and find all your treasures? Do you have favourite hunting grounds? Yes, my favourite without doubt is still Portobello, um, which, because I was at, at University in London, I was able to go on Saturday mornings then. And it's not what it was, but there were still some great experts there particularly Admiral Vernon Arcade has some fantastic dealers but um, there were a huge number all of whom are incredibly generous with their time explaining I would ask incredibly naive questions and there was never any question that they would make you feel silly or they would always explain and that definitely developed my love of craftsmanship because you know a small piece of carved ivory or a little um, you know perhaps a walking stick with a silver whippet head or whatever it was it might be a 
fantastic candelabra made by Matthew Bolton, they would explain who the people behind some of these designs were uh, or what the particular skills were. So I did learn an enormous amount just by talking to those dealers. And what about palms <laughs> and palm trees? And it's part of that same <laughs> longing. Where for... did that, was that just dreaming of faraway places? I think it must be my Palm Identifier, which is a fantastic book written by Martin Gibbons from the Palm Centre, comes everywhere with me. <laughs> yes, so it's a family cry as we're leaving for holiday. Have you got your palm book? Um, and I write notes of all the palms I see in different places. Um, again, it's very hard to know where it came from, but I, I, I think, again, it must be a visual thing. I just found them incredibly beautiful. And you, the fabrics that you have at Sewn, um, there are quite a few ones that which have their in, inspiration taken from a, a frond or yes. a palm. Yeah, lots of botanical inspiration. Many of the textiles that I've collected are botanically inspired, which, well, it won't surprise you, botanically or, or inspired by animals. <laughs> Which is the one with the little paw print? Oh yes, that was one I bought a long time ago from a dealer at Portobello. It's African, probably 40s or 50s. And then you've re reinterpreted it? Yes, so the fabrics came much later and I never imagined initially that fabrics would become part of um, Sohn's collections. But I had amassed quite a large collection and, and then thought that it would be nice to do something with them and actually the fabrics had become really quite a big part of the business um, and subsequently wallpaper. And now you have a collaboration which you've never done before with a fashion designer. Yes, with Duro Oluwu, which um, has been a really interesting departure for us and and I have to say it's been particularly nice to have sort of fresh eyes on, on looking at uh, pattern and colour uh, and Grace, with whom I work in developing the fabrics, uh, it's 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 been really interesting for us to collaborate and look at it in a totally new way. And how did that come about? What's his background? He's uh, a very brilliant fashion designer. He is known for his very um, bold use of pattern and colour. And we both shared this love of pattern and also um, have many similar interests. So did you meet by chance? Well, we'd, we'd met a long, long time ago and then hadn't seen each other for years and years. And then he um, very kindly uh, did an Instagram post about one of Soane's windows that he was walking past at night. And that's how we saw each other again. And it, it all came from that. When you look at the two of you and the two different brands, if you like, they seem very, very different. But then putting it together, it seems, you know, it's a bit like sort of putting jam and butter in the middle of two bits of bread it just it seems to work oh well, that's very nice they are um, really beautiful yeah well his designs are really lovely and the coloring was a, um, a really fun process we trialed lots and lots of different color combinations and I think that what we are actually uh, what we've eventually decided to weave for the launch uh, is a good mix of some probably more usable just soft blues and, and ivories and then the much much bolder greens and corals and, and emerald and black. I actually don't think that even those bold colours will be particularly difficult to use but perhaps for some people they will be a step further than they're, than they're traditionally used to. I think also when you go into Sewn and when you see the 
fabric on the rattan or where you see it in a setting because that's what I love about the, going into the showroom on the Pimlico Road when you see that you have almost like the little vignettes and people working sitting behind a desk or on a sofa and and it's much more it's much easier to imagine how it's going to be than rather than just looking in a fabric book and sort of trying to choose a fabric and deciding how you're going to use it you know when you walk into soon it's all there the wallpaper's on the wall and the lights are, are on and the drinks trolley which is <laughs> what I have my heart on <laughs> Um, it's very, very clever. It's beautiful. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Uh, tell me a little bit about the flower people that you work with. Oh, the land gardeners. Yeah. Oh, um, well, because that's another thing which is it's so stunning is you always notice the flowers when you walk into Sone. Well, that's um, nothing to do with me. That's um, Henrietta Courtauld and Bridgie Elworthy, who are two great old friends, and they set up the land gardeners. Um, to explore an experiment with soil health um, and um, cut gardens and restoring productive gardens. So um, they're working on some um, wonderful old 17th, 18th, 19th century walled gardens that are being restored to be fully operational productive gardens again. And they supply us with weekly flowers for the shop, so whatever's in season, which has been very lovely. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, Lulu, thank you so much. It's been a real joy to talk to you. It really has. It's lovely. Oh, thank you, Carol. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.